Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. One of the real joys in talking to Johanna Siegman, whose book, In Good Company, Notable People with Their Pets, which has a picture of this divine man on the cover jumping with his French bulldog, <laughs> is to discover there are many other divine people with amazing pets that are not dogs and cats. So on my show, Exotic Pets, I talk about the care and feeding and choice of which of the exotic pets you might choose. One of the most astounding ones in this book, astounding not only in the look of a corn snake, which I'd never seen before, but also wrapped around the head, neck, and body of such an extraordinary man, Alex Rybeck, an award-winning, but honestly, big awards, not like those ones in high school, Music director, composer, pianist, arranger. He's worked with every famous person you can imagine, everything to do with Broadway and beyond. Alex, you are such a powerhouse in the musical world. And I wonder how many people know that when you go home, you go home to Petula. And she wraps herself <laughs> around you in the most exotic way. And you just lead this, I don't know, private exotic life with her? Or do they all know? I mean, is this like one of the things we all know about Alex Rybeck, brilliant, brilliant music, music director and also corn snake owner? Or is it, or is this, or, or am I getting you out of the closet about this all at once? Oh, uh, it's, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Um, and I might contest that I'm super famous, but, but, uh, um, but, I'm 65 years old, and I've uh, made a living as a musician uh, since graduating from 
college many years ago. So as, excuse I'm, me I for interrupting. Very fortunate. As with as with many really famous, highly accomplished people, humility seems to come with it. So may I just humility say, is my greatest virtue. Well, you know, there should be more of that to go around. You've done extraordinary things in your life. I mean, we could list off the Lenny Bernsteins, the Stephen Sondheims, the Eartha Kitts, the Burt Bacharachs, all of those, I mean, all of the greats, and you've been, you know, the, the magic behind them in many cases or alongside well, them. Well, I was not the magic behind them. Uh, they were the magic maybe behind uh, some of what I do. No, I was very fortunate. I came to New York in 1980. Um, I graduated from Oberlin College. Um, I had studied composition and piano and theater. And I, my goal really was to come to New York and to work on Broadway. And wow. there was not a lot of preparation at that time for people that wanted to write shows. You know, right. That was just something that people just kind of did. And I guess you sort of... <laughs> so funny. You know, pe- pe- you had whatever background you had. I knew from a, a very young age... Uh, I, played piano since I was a, a kid and lessons since I was six and a half and started composing as, at this, as soon as I was started playing. You so mean you and Mozart? <laughs> I, <don't>, I wouldn't <laughs> consider myself, uh, I wouldn't compare myself to Mozart, but... Um, it was the I, age is I, correct. I, I, but yeah, I guess so. I, that's very kind. <laughs> well, it's, I, I it's studied, amazing. Cla- I studied classical music very seriously and I think for a good chunk of my childhood the assumption was I would head for you know a concert career and then around junior high I got involved in school theater productions and accompanying them and that's when my love of theater kind of exploded and blossomed and I said oh this is too much fun I'd rather be involved with this world than just you know practicing right uh, Mozart and Chopin right. and all and of that sweating, as much as I sweating out those music. competitions where people have nervous breakdowns at <laughs> oh, seventeen yes. right oh yes yeah I I had my share of uh, the competitions too and that was yeah always very stressful but um, it did give me a great background and I was fortunate that my teachers my my piano teachers also encouraged my composition and songwriting. And by the time I went to college, um, I knew that I was heading for New York and wanted to be in musical theater and write shows and, uh, you know, be involved in songwriting and composing for theater. And at that time, which is the, it was 1975 when I graduated high school, there really were not programs uh, at universities or colleges that were really geared for people that wanted to do that. You could major in music, you could major in theater, you could major in composition. These were all academic right. programs. There weren't really practical programs like how to that really focused on the Broadway world. So you had to sort of figure it out yourself. And I actually wrote to three of my idols, um, which was my dad's suggestion because he did all my dad was about was you know liberal arts are really important. I was sort of fighting him, like, well, I really want to focus on music and theater and he was like liberal arts are really important so after going nowhere with that he said why don't you write to three people that you admire he said because he said i'll confess i know nothing about show business so why don't you write to three people that you look up to who are successful and get their advice and he wow. said whatever they advise your mom and i will you know support that which i looking back on it i'm really moved yes. you know, that he was so yes. generous and 
smart about that, and I wrote to Leonard Bernstein, I wrote to Stephen Sondheim, and I wrote to Burt Bacharach. Those were like three wow. of my <laughs> gods growing up, you know. Of course. And I actually heard back from both Bernstein and Sondheim, who both kind of agreed with my dad in the sense that both of them uh, agreed that, you know, a liberal arts education was super important, but and then they added that, you know, I should pick schools that had great departments in music and theater. And the pra- and Sondheim also added that practical experience was really the most important thing. You know, so, you know, just get as much experience in the- musical theater as you can. You know, if you can work summer stock and winter stock, if there's such a thing. And Well, and it obviously with- was a, a time when, when people could connect in that very genuine, real way. But but now we have to talk this about Petula. We have to talk about Petula. I know we're getting there. Yes. But when did, oh, yeah, the, yeah. when did the snake enter the picture? Because I'm fascinated by oh, okay. people's careers and how they began. Right. But everybody else wants to know, when's the snake okay. coming into yes. the story? Thank you. Thanks for pulling us back. Um, well, speaking of my dad, my dad grew up in, in the hills of West Virginia, and he and his brother were kind of naturalists growing up. My dad could tell you the name of every bird and every plant and every rock. And, Neat. you know, he was really nature boy. Yep. And so when my brother and I were little kids, my father would often take us on hikes and he would turn over rocks and tree stumps and see what was crawling underneath. And, you know, we learned a lot that way. And I can remember, I must've been five or six years old. And, uh, being on a hike and my dad turned over a log or something and found a little snake, which looking back on it was probably an Eastern worm snake. It's a little harmless snake, you know, that's like, you know, five inches long or something. And he picked it up and we passed it around. And so he wasn't afraid. And so I, you know, I was not afraid. And I think fear of snakes is largely taught. I think there might be for some people, maybe it's inborn or whatever, you know, but right. I think, if you stand, if you and I've done this a lot because whenever I go to zoos, I always end up in the reptile house. If you go to a reptile house of a zoo, I guarantee you stand there for any length of time and you just listen to the conversations of people going by. You'll hear parents and older brothers and older sisters telling the little kids, "Oh, don't look in there. That's scary." Or you know, "Oh, that snake's gonna come and bite you." And they start. You know, they're trying to be playful, maybe, but what they're actually doing is filling these little kids' imaginations with all these nightmare images of, you know, oh, don't even look at that. That's a snake. It'll kill you. People get this. They start associating reptiles with danger and fear. And, of course, if you think of the Bible, (laughs) you know, the Adam and Eve story, the the snake is the villain. So, I mean, they, they they get a bad rap. All the way around, and I think a lot of it is is really just misinformation and ignorance passed on there's from generation to there's, generation. And there's evidently some societal issues, like in Guatemala, I knew someone for just she would see a snake in East Hampton when when she was around on like my you know compost pile, and she screamed and vomited. It was that level of wow. complete visceral reaction. Then again. Apparently in Guatemala, if an owl comes near your house, and I was really happy to have one nearby because I always thought there was supposed to be good luck, it means someone's going to die. So culturally, I think it depends also on what are the snakes in that country, right? Because in Southern California, where I lived for a very long time, and I rode and my horses was in stables that were in dry, hilly areas, 
Mm. I was walking him, just hand walking him to graze one day, and there was a rattlesnake right yeah. there yeah. making the rattle sound. I got to tell you, I'm not scared of snakes, but that's pretty scary, right? And what about the pythons sure. that well, squeeze people to death or their victims to well, death? Okay, well, again, we're, I wanted to, first of all, when you talked about cultural things, and I was saying that cuts both ways because there are towns in India and other places that worship snakes. That's right. right? That's so, right. So, so some cultures revere them. Yes. And again, in Latin America, there were Latin America, there were snake gods that lived in the sky. Nice. Um, but there were snakes that flew, you know. So snakes have been in, you know, the imagination of mankind, you know, since the beginning of history, and they've been worshipped, and they've been feared. And, of course, there are snakes that are venomous, and if they bite you, they, you know, the venom right. can kill you. So. So there's a there's good reason to be cautious around them. And g- going back to that first memory that I have of my dad showing me um, that little worm snake and my being instantly fascinated. I think most kids are fascinated by yes. creatures that are little, whether yes. they're little bugs or little mm-hmm. bird, baby birds, whatever. We're fascinated by creatures that are smaller than we are and we feel some kind of kinship or protective feelings come out. And I remember that snake being passed around, but my and I think my dad picked up on the fact that I was, you know, wide-eyed and fascinated and eager and wanted to see more. And then he read me the right act. He said, you know, this is a harmless snake, and, you know, it's okay because I'm passing it to you. And he said, but if you are ever, you know, on your own and you come across a snake and you're not 100% sure of what it is, leave it alone. Good advice. So he... So, yeah, and so he wasn't overly like, oh, snakes are no problem, just, you know, never be afraid of them. At the same time, he wasn't, oh, all snakes are evil and they're out to kill you and they're going to attack. Right, right exactly. So he, when was the moment, was, but when was the moment when you said, oh, my God, that corn snake is so beautiful, I have to live with her? When did you decide <laughs> well, to bring a corn snake into your home? Because we want to make sure we use our time wisely so that we can have, I mean, there's a gorgeous picture, many pictures of you actually, in mm-hmm. in the wonderful book, In Good Company, and there'll be one that goes along with the podcast of this conversation. But were yeah. you 20, 40, 50? Well, I'm, well, I'm 65. I've had the tool in now since 2014. So that's uh, coming up on 10 years now. Nice. Um, and in captivity, corn, a corn snake is just an, another name for the red rat snake. It's the same Okay. A lot of people are familiar with black rat snakes. Um, the the rat, rat snakes are a very common snake across a lot of the United States, and they're constricting snakes. They're non-venomous, and they can grow pretty long. Corn snakes in nature are found in the southeastern part of the United States. You know, they're all over Florida. You just, you know, you'll see them crossing the roads or in people's gardens. They're very. That, that's why I think it's kind of funny that I'm on a show about exotic pets. I don't think of my pets as exotic. Isn't I, that interesting? Me, I, I mean, if somebody kept a, I think there are exotic snakes. There are snakes that are rare or that are, you know, bred, just like they're exotic dogs. People breed, you know, crossbreed dogs, and they're people that devote their lives to interbreeding snake species that a nature would never really? interbreed. And they those do? Those to me are exotic Oh yeah, and they're thousands of dollars. You know, they're wow. because if you if you look at pictures of snakes, you know, snakes come in all different colors and patterns, right? Yes. So t- t- a corn snake, for example, in na- what I have is a just the way nature m- made them. I, my corn snake is just a 
you know, what you see is is the way nature. Ma- I think nature's the best artist, frankly. I, I, well, she's magnificent. Her, her she's pattern, really beautiful. Colors, she, and if you'll know, she's got like sort of brick red blotches, orange, orangey reddish blotches. Oh, and she's got black, artwork on her. Back, I mean, many different then, patterns. And then, and then the belly pattern is black and white checkerboard. Exactly. You know, completely different, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. So I think she's beautiful just the way nature made her. However, there are people that um, like to meddle with genetics, and there are corn snakes that have been bred that have stripes, like a garter snake. How funny. Right? So they'll find a snake, you know, just like there are mutations in human beings, right? Sometimes a a human being pops out that's albino, or a human (laughs) being pops out that has, you know, webbed fingers or something. Yes. Right? And these are sort of generally one-offs. But what happens in the snake world is that someone will find an albino snake and then breed that snake, or they'll find an what they call an aberrant right. pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, so a snake that's normally blotched, maybe one out of a million comes out and it has stripes instead of blotches. So a collector will collect that and keep breeding it, and eventually there'll be a generation of striped that's Corn wild. Snakes, and then they get a lot of unusual. money for that. Yes. It's a whole industry. It's oh, my goodness. Industry. That's so interesting. All right. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to know, do you feel sad when you go away on your on your work business, business to leave Petula alone in her terrarium, or is she glad to get a rest from you? Snakes are very soft. Snakes are not like dogs and cats. People have to understand that. They're very different. They don't have the same brain you know, size and brain capacity. And the relationship you have, I think, with the reptile is different. You know, people, the questions I am most often asked are, does she know you? And, um, which my reply is, how would I know? (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's a great answer. That's a great answer. And I'm not. No, no, no. That's a great answer. Like, how would I, you know, a snake isn't going to come when you call it. And the other thing is snakes generally are not social creatures. You know, dogs and cats are social creatures, dogs in particular. They want to be around their human. Snakes are hardwired to be solitary. Right. So no, so Petula does not miss me when I'm away. And I was being a little facetious. And well, no, it's a good question. But one of, to me, one of the beauties of being a snake owner is that the low at least, again, with a corn snake, which is a very easy-to-care-for species. Not all, There are exotic snakes that need very specific, right. you know, high-maintenance requirements of temperature and food. But and she's all of not it. one of them. Corn snakes can be um, pretty much neglected. And I'm a pretty neglectful owner, I'm sorry to say. But my schedule is one that involves a lot of travel. I am away a lot. Petula eats once every 10 days. That's great. We've run out of so, time. We're going to have to, I'm going to have to have you come back on Exotic Pets and talk about the specific care and you. feeding of Petula. Your story is wonderful. The pictures of you with her look like you are totally entwined in each other and completely on the same wavelength, but you're just faking it or she is. Well, I wanted, I wanted to convey, I, no, we took a lot of different types we've of We've run out of time, Alex. Alex, we've run out of time. I'm We've run out of time, sweetie. I'm so sorry. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. 
This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human-edible, ethically-sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.